0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All right, Matthew 22, where we will be. We'll see how today goes. You know, I'm looking forward to the resurrection body. That's uh, Last week, I was wearing contact lenses for the first time in 11 years. Well, maybe nine or ten years. And uh not adjusting very well to that. So I got my new glasses and uh now I'm wearing those but the uh not adjusting well there either. <laughs> so, but they told me for the first time in my life now I have these what they call progressive scan lenses, you know what I'm talking about? And so there's no line for bifocals and whatever, but it is um distance vision up top and you know what, you know what it is, right? Okay, I'm the I'm the youngest guy here, so okay. But the, uh, I'm I'm swimming in a fishbowl kind of a thing. Yeah. Does it really? Because every time I turn my head, it's just like the whole room just kind of fishbowl. Okay. I'm not sure I heard that. Okay. All right. In any event, if you are uh, listening to the MP3 file, then uh, just simply pray for me, and uh, if you're here live, uh, I guess you can pray for me too. Uh, Matthew 22, we started this a week ago, episode 6, tribute to Caesar, and uh, I want to get right back to it here today. Uh, Verse 15, the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said, and uh, they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful, and teach the way of God in truth, and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? All right. Before we uh, get back to our study this hour, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Ask the Father to set aside distractions and sanctify our thinking in obedience to His truth, shall we pray? My Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word, we thank you for the privilege and blessing we have to assemble together and, and to study, Father, and in particular this hour I do ask, uh, as we do every time, that you would guide us into the truth, but this time perhaps most especially, Father, uh, the subject matter is one that uh, often leads to some uh, misapplication, Father, in uh, in different ways, and, and so... Uh, We always want to be careful in what we study. We always want to rightly divide. We we never would want to misapply any doctrine, Father. Um, But uh, today in particular, Father, we ask that you would take hold of our thinking and and humble us for the proper applications. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Today we're going to deal with rendering unto Caesar, that which is Caesar's. And... uh, how a lot of folks misuse that and uh, feel that it justifies a tremendous amount of activity that they they label then as biblically appropriate uh, and fail to identify the fact that uh, that render unto Caesar is not separated from render unto God that which is God's and that both uh, have to be exalted in the proper uh, application. And so you can't allow yourself to fall into the either-or mentality when it's a both-and mentality and uh, when the uh, circumstances do place themselves into the either or, when you have to choose one versus the other, then which way does, does that go? And I think you understand it. We obey God under every circumstance. So. But we've got we to outline exactly how this comes to, uh, to application. So let's look at it. Um, we talked last week about these uh, early points of study. I'll just run through them very quickly. He, uh, the Lord's enemies are dedicated to his death. They have been for some time, uh, but they still prefer to find a lawful way to make it happen. Their emphasis is on the, uh, the legality of it, the lawfulness of it. Uh, they they, they want to trap him in what he says, see. And all they're looking for is a verbal trap. They don't care about the reality so long as they can get a statement on the record, and as long as that statement on the record has an appearance of being contrary to law, Mosaic law, then, uh, forget the reality, as long as they've got the appearance, then they can justify the, uh, the murder that they've had intended all along. Uh, There is interesting vocabulary, which we studied a week ago, uh, different between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as it uh, refers to the different traps that they laid. The Pagaduo trap relates to the actual snaring of an animal designed for that animal's death. Uh, The Agro uh, trap is uh, the imagery of a a fishing net uh, being caught in a snare, being caught in a net. And then the uh, Epilombotomy trap is uh, the one there that's unique to Luke and so we discussed uh, the elements of them all and regardless of what vocabulary you you want to look at some cases it's not the vocabulary that spells it out necessarily but it's the concept regardless of what word you use the concept is still the same. The adversary would love to trap us. The adversary would love to to bind us into false systems of thinking, would bind us into wrong priorities would um, as in the case of Second Timothy, to take us held captive to hold us prisoner in the angelic conflict if we 're held prisoner in satanic philosophies, then we 're not going to be effective in uh, pursuing the things of the Lord. And we're not going to be uh, actively engaged in the things that the Lord would have for us to be engaged in because we're sidetracked. See? And I hope you understand that because this is really at the core of what we're going to deal with today. Believers get politically sidetracked. And they confuse their rendering unto Caesar for rendering unto God. And they think that, that they're both the same and they're not the same. We've got to understand. They are different. And uh, the minute we substitute our political involvement for our uh, priesthood, we're in trouble. And uh, I'm going to illustrate that for you. I'm going to show you the principles. We're going to look at the verses. Uh, and perhaps provide some, some ways to think of things that maybe we haven't thought of before. Okay? So uh, let's examine the scriptures and see if these things are so. Interesting partnership between Pharisees and Herodians. As mentioned last week, they, they, under most circumstances, never got along. It's like seeing the Pharisees and the Sadducees cooperating. And uh, maybe even more extreme than that, uh, uh, the Pharisees and Herodians uh, cooperating is interesting. And we see something similar uh, today when you get different groups that are cooperating. And, and they uh, they say, well, why can't you cooperate with them? See, uh, if... if uh, if you're pro-life and the Mormons are pro-life, well, then why can't you sit together in a prayer meeting and pray for pro-life issues and so forth? Stop and, say, stop and evaluate what you just asked me. Okay? Why can I not pray with demon worshipers? Is that what you're asking? <laughs> okay, And if I have a realm of political life or, or temporal life that I might have agreement with, so, what? what? How does that then veto the spiritual life differences whereby I cannot be bound together with darkness? I cannot be what, what concord has light and darkness? What partnership has Christ with Belial? And if there is a, a secular agreement on something, well, that's uh, an interesting coincidence, but it does not affect my spiritual life or my obligation to come out from among them and be separate. I cannot partake with demons. You understand? And so, to join in some kind of ecumenical thing where I'm going to pray with Mormons and Buddhists and, and Hindus and Muslims and things like that? No way. Not today, not tomorrow, not this side of the rapture. How about that? Um... So this link between the Pharisees and the Herodians is interesting, and and they feel it's a trap. Uh, whichever way he goes, if he sides with the Herodians, uh, that might even be better in their book because then that would smash his uh, popularity among the Jewish population, and it will also help to uh, bolster their case that he's acting in a non-Mosaic law uh, capacity. You know, remember, unlawful to them is is in violation of Mosaic law. Okay, not illegal in terms of a of a crime or a a, a legal code. Um, Or, siding with the Pharisees then, they can live with that too. Uh, You know, thanks for agreeing with us, but now we're going to use that as testimony that you're hostile to Caesar and uh, we will accuse you of being uh, hostile to Caesar. That's actually one of the routes they end up going when uh, he's before Pontius Pilate saying, look, he's hostile to Caesar and if you're a friend of Caesar's, you're not going to release him. And we're going to see that uh, Pilate himself was on shaky ground anyway, as far as Caesar was concerned. So uh, that argument carried a lot of weight in in uh, Pilate's mind. The phony praise that they lay on very slick is uh, is interesting. It's dripping with with uh, deceit. Uh, and yet, it does provide us what the public view is that Jesus Christ is a, a teacher of truth. He does not compromise. He never. Um, he's not. Doesn't defer to anybody. He's not partial to any. And uh, they use that as a part of their flattery. But it does reflect the reality, and it is consistent with what we understand uh, in the pastoral epistles or other elements within the New Testament, that it's just very uh, appropriate, very admirable. Bible teachers ought to be able to teach without partiality. You have to speak the whole counsel of God's Word. You can't show favoritism, and you can't can't, uh, defer uh, in compromising of your teaching. So that was the third point we looked at last week. And as we ran out of time, we ended with the elements here of malice, hypocrisy, and trickery. Uh, The term in Matthew was malice. Uh, that emphasizes the aspect of evil, almost evil personified in a feminine noun sense. Poneros is your adjective for evil. Poneria is your feminine noun that refers to the realm of wickedness or malice uh, itself. And uh, that's the malice that's at work here that's uh, feeding their questions. Uh, Other uses of poneria you have listed there as well. We looked at those last week, I'm pretty sure. All right. Then Hupacrisis. Uh, where we get our English word hypocrite, but a lot of times we use hypocrite so often that we actually um, don't even recognize it anymore what the, the derivation of it actually is, the idea of play acting. Um, in fact, the Greeks didn't use hypocrisus the way we use hypocrite, okay? They didn't use it that way at all. Uh, they used it in a dramatic portrayal that you wore a mask for your uh, for the role you were playing in your drama, okay? And uh, they, they did not use it the way we use it as being a, you know, a two-faced hypocrite in life. Okay? They never would have thought of it in that sense, I don't think. Um, I could double-check that, but I'm pretty sure the, the common usage of hypocrisists was with respect to the, the drama performances of their time and the fact that everybody was a hypocrite. Everybody had to wear some kind of a mask for the role they were playing in the, either the comedy or the drama or the, whatever the, the, the form of drama was that they were portraying. So, um, and so that's the original sense. And that's what they're doing here. They're play-acting. They've got a mask on. They're playing a role as if somehow they, they have a genuine um, intellectual interest in his, in his view. Okay? Which I asked last week, how often does that happen? Uh, when was the last time the Pharisees were legitimately curious as to Jesus Christ's legal ruling so that somehow they might change their thinking on, on a... Never. Never say they have their teachers, they have their schools, they have theirs uh that they have allegiance to, and he's not a part of that structure. He didn't go to their schools, he's not playing in their in their uh educational system, and they have no interest in what he has to say about anything unless they can find something they can get him on the record with to, to bring about his death and so the uses of hypocrisy there in uh, Mark. 12.15 related to Matthew 23.28 and Luke 12.1. And then finally, the final term there that's used in Luke references the trickery. the uh, How clever and creative fallen humanity is in pursuing things of Satan, craftiness and trickery. And that's uh, what we deal with there. All right. Point five then. Jesus' answer was simple yet brilliant and teaches a vital doctrine for personal application. His simple answer was, well, show me that coin you're talking about. Show me that coin that you use to pay the tax with. And uh, so whose picture is that? Okay, brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Like, almost like the old Stephen Wright joke that I remember from years ago. And, um, you know, it was the comedian Stephen Wright, he says, you know, do you think when George Washington was asked for his ID, he pulled out a quarter? <laughs> yeah. If your head is on a coin, you know, you have an opportunity there to... <laughs> anyway... Um, whose picture is that on that coin? Said, well, that's Caesar's picture. Okay. He says, well, then it's got to be Caesar's coin, doesn't it? Right. Now, that's not strictly true, depending on how you consider it, but it is true in the sense that the coinage is authorized by the government that mints it. All right, and the coinage has value determined by the authority of the government that's minting it. And so the fact of the the stamping of that coin, not so much the fact that it's Caesar's likeness, but he uses that principle, the likeness of Caesar. And I'm going to use that principle because we have the likeness of God that you and I are created in. You and I are created in the image and likeness of God. And so we have an allegiance there whereby we must render unto God the things that are God's. And uh, as the Lord said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. This is the world's... um, economic system for, for, you know, as a medium of exchange, a currency for the buying and selling. And that's the way the world operates. You understand that? And so uh, if you are participating in that system, then you follow the rules of that system. All right. That's just the way it's set up. And um, it, it's not, there's nothing weird about it. Okay. What's, what would be weird would be this view of saying, "Oh well, we we should not be participating in the tax system of this monetary structure because of whatever religious convictions we have. That oh well, you know, we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. I'm I'm exempt from earthly taxation. Blah blah blah. Uh, and there've been groups from time to time that have you know made claims of that nature. Um, and uh, and in the, I, I believe that they're twisted in their scriptural application. That uh, they need to listen to verse 29 of this chapter where Jesus said, no, you are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. All right. Uh, you're, uh, you're off track in what you're trying to, uh, to do here in this earthly, earthly realm. So uh, I expect this will come up in a variety of different things. Um, all three gospels employ apoditomy. Didomy meaning to give, apo to give back. Uh, It is a repayment, as it were. Apodidomy, number 591, has 48 New Testament uses. Uh, Didomy itself means to to give. Um, It's related to some of the uh, betrayal terms that we have here and elsewhere, the idea of paladidomy being given over, being handed over, betrayed. Uh, The Pharisees are looking to betray him. Uh, But no, this is a different compound. This is apodidomy, to give back, to pay back. And it references many of the things that we think of in our modern idiom. Our, you know, we talk about payback, right? Um, unbelievers mainly talk about payback a lot. In fact, they live for that. <laughs> they, uh, in some cases, they really uh, specialize in it and they crave the idea of the vengeance that they're taking in their payback mentality. Well, all right, so if, if your workplace is anything like mine used to be, then you're, you're familiar with the concept. Um, but that's what this is. This is payback, and it is a valid principle. As a matter of fact, when God speaks of our rewards, that when He returns the second advent, Jesus Christ Himself will be issuing recompense. He Himself will issue the payback, the ultimate payback for the ungodly and the ungodly deeds they've done in the ungodly way and, and things of that nature. Our judgment seat of Christ rewards are going to be described as payback, recompense that we return that, that God returns back to us. Payment with respect to our service to him. So there are positive ways in which payback is used. And and here, uh, I believe it's a positive way that we are to render. That is, we are to payback. We are to repay. That uh, the the currency that we have is, for example, if you have any dollars in your possession right now, uh, in your pocket or wallet, purse, whatever, uh, the, the currency you have is United States legal tender. Say, well that's my money. No. <laughs> you 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 may have a certain portion of it now in your possession and control or bank account or whatnot. But who controls the legal system? Say, what legal tender is it? You know, when you go to Ukraine, uh what's their what's their legal tender? Okay. If you bring the Grievna back here to this country and try spending your Grievna, uh who are you gonna find to take it? <laughs> right? Now, it's a little bit awkward because, of course, I believe—I don't believe there's a country on the planet that won't take U.S. currency. They all do, okay? And, and in, in many cases, the merchants are very happy to have U.S. dollars, and they—you uh, know, you don't have to go to a bank to exchange it. They'll be glad to give you whatever exchange rate you want if it's reasonable. They'll, they'll barter for that, too. All right, but the idea here is payback. Now, rendering unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, the currency is his. Rendering to Caesar means providing government's due allegiance. This is the principle. Rendering unto Caesar means providing government's due allegiance. The allegiance that they are entitled to, that is due to them, because of God's design in the laws of divine establishment. And the two primary texts we have for church age application are Romans 13, verses 1-7. through In 1 Peter 2, verses 13 through 17, government is entitled to allegiance. It is entitled to submission as a part of what God designed in the laws of divine establishment. Uh, very quickly, if you're not familiar with, with that, we start with human volition under the laws of individuality. Then we have marriage. When, uh, so Adam was originally created a solitary human being and the principles of volition or individuality were established. And then with the provision of Eve, you then have husband and wife. Man and woman in the divine institution of marriage. And then uh, the divine institution of family. And then finally, the collection of families together into uh, tribal and national boundaries under the laws of nationalism. All of this is spelled out in the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. Okay? And it's fundamental for humanity, and it's totally hated by Satan, <laughs> Right? And so, you know, the bulk of satanic philosophy in the world today is all going to be centered on attacking nationality, families, marriages, and human volitional responsibility. And uh, those four realms will be attacked by the bulk of satanic philosophies. So, uh, nationalism. Of course, uh, in the early stages after um, the flood, uh, when God had commanded them to, and, and it actually blessed them and divided them into their the threefold division of the Ham, Shem, and Japheth divisions of humanity and then had sent them forth to fill the earth and subdue it. Rather than filling the earth and subdue it, they decided to concentrate their efforts at, at Babel. And uh, rather than identifying the God of Shem, they, they followed a Hermetic uh, conqueror in the terms of Nimrod. And, and it is interesting to see uh, the, the early history of, of rebellion, even very quickly after the flood, and then what God did to scatter the nations. So uh, if you take the time to read through Genesis 10 and Genesis 11, I think you're going to glean an awful lot as it relates to the tribes, tongues, peoples, and nations. And uh, not only do you see it at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, but guess what? It ends the Bible in Revelation. Tribes, tongues, people, and nations, that uh, that is the center of uh, activity there in the tribulation in Revelation 6-19. Alright, well let's look now at Romans 13. Let's take a look at this. God, I'm going to do one quick side trip and then I'm going to hit Romans 13. My side trip though is on the way to Romans in the book of Acts. And that's uh, Acts 17. And I spent the last five minutes giving a three hour thumbnail sketch on the laws of divine establishment I hope that everyone has a handle on it and if if I get the sense between now and next week that that there's more issues there that aren't understood then we'll take some time next week to actually go through Genesis 10 and 11 I think we also need to go through Genesis 2 we need to understand what God was establishing when he established the Garden of Eden with the water rights and mineral rights the way that he did when he established what are the economic systems going to be for human uh, trade and for uh, Uh, economic uh, transactions between human beings. So that's worth going through also when you understand the mineral rights and water rights of the uh, description of Eden there in Genesis chapter 2. But, not to get into that today, Um, in Acts 17, as uh, we look at Paul's sermon here to the uh, men of Athens, and the um, nature of what God has done. I want you to see here. Um, verse 26 is really the key verse, but you understand the context on this. Uh, men of Athens, I that you're very religious in all respects. I mean, they had temples and idols to everything imaginable. Greek gods, Roman gods. Etruscan gods, they had all kinds of gods, and uh, just to cover their bases, they uh, thought, well, we might have missed one. <laughs> so let's have this one here. Let's have one more, kind of a default, um, to whom it may concern kind of thing, uh, an with inscription to, un- to an unknown God. So Paul says, what, uh, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. You want to know about God? He's not unknown. He's knowable. He's nearby and he's knowable. The God who made the world and all things, in fact, the one and only God. The rest of these are posers, imposters. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. I mean, the Greek gods were pathetic. They were—they had needs, they had lusts, they had temper fits, they had—they uh, were—they were simply reflections of their human inventors, anyway, as far as that goes, they got angry, they, got, they were very touchy, and they had to be, you know, Poseidon had to be uh, quieted, you know, and different things like that. Well, no, God doesn't have needs. He provides all our needs. But verse 26 says, He made from one, either one man, one blood, one. He made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Okay, that's important. Uh, if you want to talk about the, the unity of, of the human race, that we're all one, we're all human beings, we're all Adamic descendants, you can talk about that. Yes, that's true. However, not only did he make all of humanity from one man, but he also broke them into nations, okay? nationalities. And so, um, every nation of mankind live on the face of the earth, having determined, notice now, his sovereignty is in charge. Their appointed times, when as a nation burst, and when as a nation buried, God's in charge of that. And the boundaries of their habitation. God establishes borders. That's why Satan hates borders so much. Okay, God established borders and sometimes borders are enlarged. It says that they are enlarged for blessing or they are diminished for discipline. See, when another nation uh, scarfs up some of your land and the boundaries are moved, well, then that nation has an advantage over you as far as that goes. So God's in charge of all of this. It's part of his control over history. He has. And since we understand he's given all judgment to the son, and that includes the judgment of, of this sovereign exercise and so uh, that's why the the common expression that Pastor Theme coined all those years ago is that Jesus Christ controls history, and that is true. Jesus Christ controls history, and he has sovereign control over things that happen in, in national affairs. So there it is, and uh, we need to understand that as far as where we are in the nation we live in, uh, the present boundaries that we have and, and how those might be uh, in peril, and then uh, the duration of our national existence and how that might be in peril, and uh, the pattern of history that we see, not only in the Bible, but throughout church history and so forth, that we see um, what happens when a, a uh, lone superpower thinks they're invincible. And uh, typically, that's uh, the, the pride that happens right before they fall. So, different elements on that. All right, now we can get to Romans 13. hope I'm not too shocking today. The uh A lot of believers, especially believers that have teaching on the rapture, um, just kind of assume, for whatever wrong reasons they have, that uh, they're not going to see the destruction of America. That, uh, oh no, no, we're not going to see the destruction of America. Uh, We're we're, going to see the rapture first. Wait a minute. Think about what you just said. Now, you can rephrase that and say, we're not going to see the tribulation. We're going to see the rapture first. I'll agree with you on that. But the statement, we're not going to see the destruction of America, slow down. What promise do you have in the Bible that says the United States of America will be in existence at the, either the time of the tribulation or the, uh, the rapture of the church? We could be destroyed tomorrow, as far as that goes. All right. Romans 13, then verses 1 through 7, one of the primary texts that references our responsibility to submit the human government. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. There is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Alright? So this is the fundamental principle. And it gets spelled out in verses 2 through 7. But the the basic statement comes there in verse 1 that defines everything that follows. Okay? We are to be in subjection. If we defy the government, we're defying the authority that God has placed us under. Okay? Which means right now we're under the Laws of the state of Texas. We're under the federal laws of the United States of America. Okay? Those are the laws we're under. And uh, this is what God has directed, permitted. Uh, this is what uh, w- what we were born into or, or where we are now. And uh, by the way, this, there's a lot of questions that, that get sparked out of this. Then, well, then how does this relate to a tyrannical government? Uh, does this apply to every government, even the tyrannical governments? Uh, some people like to imply in verse one uh, every person is to be in subjection to um, proper governing authorities, governing authorities that are operating under the God's principles for the laws of a divine establishment. Okay, and they kind of read that into the text. So it's uh, what's sometimes called eisegesis instead of exegesis. And they're not taking it out of the text; they're actually reading it into the text as an isogetical. Uh, inference well uh, I, I can be subject to the proper governing authorities um, the ones that God established okay and to kind of re rewrite the second part of verse one uh, to saying well if it's a, if it's a harmful government then God didn't establish that okay and I'm going to prove to you from Daniel that's not true he establishes and permits the harmful governments as well and uh, to me, the biggest uh, exegetical or uh, isagogical factor for this chapter is to understand that Paul wrote this when Nero is the Caesar. Okay, so uh, let me ask you that question: If Nero is the Caesar and Paul writes down "be subject to governing authorities," you think we have a legitimate case to say, "Oh, well, this doesn't apply to Barack Obama uh, because he's obviously not—he's uh, not there for, to bless us." Well, he's probably not there to bless us. I, I I will agree with you on that. He may very well be there to curse us. But he's there. And why is he there? He's there because God put him there. And that we need to understand. And some believers can't handle that. But that's what the Scripture says. And so we're going to lay it out there and, and show it for what it is. We'll get to that in the second point. Uh, but for right now we're looking at government itself. And uh, so it says, Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. You've got to understand, this, is, uh, this passage was, was huge in the American Revolutionary War. That pastors uh, preached on this verse, I mean on this chapter, Extensively extensive writing extensive prayer extensive study extensive preaching extensive debate and disagreements because uh, some pastors said you know what we can't if we can't resist king george okay and uh, because of this verse we can't resist king george and uh, other pastors said no wait a minute it's, it's, there's something bigger in, in play besides King George, because there's Magna Carta, there's principles of, of English common law, okay, that we are under. King George is also under, and so they viewed it in, in a larger in a larger picture. And they weren't trying to throw off. Here's the other thing: they're not trying to throw off all government. They wanted to replace with a government that was suited to the what the scriptures revealed. So, in any event. Um, you and I are going to have to determine at what point, notice, be subject to the governing authorities, well, at what point then do you have the opportunity or even the obligation to relocate yourself under different governing authorities? When do we become the next pilgrims? Where's the next Mayflower? When do we depart a godless land of idolatry and, and look for a land of Freedom and, and blessing and, and uh, biblical governing principles. Alright. So, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and, the, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of uh, fear for good behavior, but for evil. And as a general rule, this is true. Government, as designed by God, is there, does not bear the sword for nothing. It is God's tool. It is God's agent. And, uh, and so uh, wrongdoers are dealt with. And uh, so the idea here is that if you're obeying the law and if you're uh, properly in subjection to the authorities, then you've got no fear of the government. Okay? This, by the way, has been part of what the, the effort to try to show, for example, in communist China and other places uh, where the totalitarian governments are terrified of the Christians. There have been efforts made by Christian apologetic ministries and evangelistic ministries and so forth to say, you don't have anything to fear from the Christians in your population. Christians in your population are going to render unto Caesar what is Caesar. They're going to render unto God what is God's. You don't have to be afraid, but see in many cases, the, the powers in China believe that it was a Christian influence that caused the Soviet Union to fall, of all things. And so they're a little bit touchy at the moment related to the Christians within China. Oh, at least that's what they claim. I think they're just demonic and they hate Christians. All right. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. If you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. It is a minister of God. You know, we say that's the word for ministry. It's like we have a, a minister, a pulpit ministry, or a gospel ministry, or or so forth. Well, the, the government has a sword ministry, okay, to execute capital punishment in the case of murderers. Um, under mosaic law, they would execute mosaic punishment for murderers and adulterers and homosexuals and uh, sorcerers and a lot of different categories. He does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. And this is actually a grace provision. If, if the government, if, if Caesar can actually bear the sword uh, and administer the wrath, then it prevents uh, the person from um, the damage that they can do to themselves by working themselves up for uh, personal wrath and personal vengeance and things of that nature takes it out of your hands. Verse 5 says, Therefore it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. Because of this, you also pay taxes. Look at that. Taxes aren't evil. There are some components of taxation that can be used for evil. But taxes themselves are a component of the subjection to Caesar. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing, and that's why in the structure of the Old Testament, under Mosaic Law, there was uh, a portion of the tithe that was the, for the support of the temple and the, the sacrificial structure there, and a portion of the tithe that was supported to the, the, the political uh, tax, uh, taxation, and then a portion that was designed for famine relief or for the assistance to the uh, to the poor. And so, uh, for this, you also pay taxes for rulers or servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. So render to all what is due. How about that? I think Paul here was uh, copycatting uh, you know, what, what Jesus had said and he's exactly right. Uh, tax to whom tax is due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. And those are all different realms that have application in various um, uh, diff- different aspects of political life. Secular political life. Okay? Now, We do have to, of course, identify the fact that the Roman imperial system is different than what we occupy today. But we we clearly we see principles and we make the application of principles in whatever structure we're in. That's uh, hopefully understood. All right. So again, verse seven, render to all what is due. And that's what the Lord said. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar. It is due Caesar. It is the taxes are due. If uh, the government says it's due, then it's due. You understand. All right. governments due allegiance. Over to first Peter. It's not just Jesus and Paul, but now we have a third testimony coming from Peter. First Peter two, verses 13 or 17. And, of course, I don't need Paul and Peter to validate what Jesus said, but um, Jesus said it, that's enough for me, I'll I'll obey it. But but it is interesting that, that as in so much of everything else in Scripture, that uh, God does not leave himself with just simply a a single witness, but by the testimony of two or three, every fact is confirmed. And uh, we like to build our doctrines on a a multitude of of biblical uh, testimonies, not just simply one little verse somewhere that we can... Create a huge Jabez prayer empire or something, right we want to just we want to have a a broad spectrum of uh, scripture to verify the biblical principle that we're operating under and so we read in first Peter two verses thirteen through seventeen submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as to the one in authority, or to governors. Now, here we start to recognize that now there can be subdivisions, not just on the national level, but you could have region, regional level, okay, or even local level, what we would have today in terms of federal, state, and local governor uh, authority structures. Back then, you would have, of course, Caesar over the whole Roman Empire, and then you would have the province that you were in, either a senatorial province or a or an imperial province. So you would have a procurator, or you would have a governor of some sort. Um, And then even within the province, then you would have particular uh, cities or or locations that would have other uh, legates, legates, L-E-G-A-T-E-S, legates, I think. Do you know how you pronounce legate? Legate? Legate. All right. In any event, from the procurator to the legate, legate. I like legate. Um, <laughs> the worst part about how these things were pronounced, of course, they're all coming out of Latin, so however they pronounce it in Latin, but then the, the writers, if you have British writers, and they have a different kind of English, and then American writers have a different kind of English, and then Texas writers have a different kind of English. No wonder it's so confusing for people, in any event. Kings or governors say, well, we don't have a king. We have a president, and I don't want to submit to him. No, wait a minute. <laughs> There's a principle here. okay? And although he's not called a king, he is the supreme executive authority. He is the equivalent of a king in the structure that our government is established to operate with. Okay? He is the supreme executive authority. But now we also have legislative authority. Should we submit to them? We also have judicial authority. Should we submit to them? Okay. And do you understand how many layers of judicial authority are over you right now? You have county courts, city courts, federal district courts, state courts, superior courts, appellate courts. There's probably 30 realms of courts that are over you right now. And, uh, you know, different uh, local levels that are over you right now. Some you don't even think about. You think about the school board has authority over you. You ever think about that? Well, they tax you, don't they? If they're taxing you, then do you submit? Is that an authority that's over you? All right. And so kings or governors are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers. Sent by who? Sent by God. For the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Now, understand that oftentimes it seems backwards. It seems that the evildoers are the ones that are praised and the ones that are doing right are called the bad guys. Well, that's an indication of the apostasy in your culture, is it not? Another reason to pray. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, do not use your freedom as covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people. Love the Brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And so as a Christian community, we've got an opportunity to have salt and light impact in our nation, in our culture. Tremendous opportunity there. Alright, now that's rendering to Caesar, but then we also have to render to God. Well, before I get to that though, understand the image of Caesar identifies the sovereignty. This is the point C in the outline. The image of Caesar identifies the sovereignty of the authorized minted coinage. The authorized minted coinage. The reason why the denarius was legal tender is because Rome said it was legal tender. It was a token of accepted value. There's a case just last week of a man that was arrested for uh, minting silver coins. And um, you don't get in trouble if you want to mint commemorative silver coins or if you want to mint silver coins as an investment vehicle or something. That you can sell it and buy it and trade it. That's not illegal. But if you represent it as legal, tra- as legal tender for uh, the purchase of, uh, of goods and services, then uh, that's when the uh, government of the United States is going to take issue with you because they are the ones that issue the currency. And so the image there identifies the authorized minted coinage, tokens of accepted value. All right. We're going to see the same thing when God stamps his image on us, that we are the currency of his economy in, uh, and we are to render unto him. All right. Rendering to God means providing God's due allegiance. Providing God's due allegiance. And now here's the key. Even if it means defying government's unrighteous demands. Even if it means defying government's unrighteous demands. And this is where when push comes to shove, we decide what gets pushed and what gets shoved. Okay? Now, under most circumstances, it won't. In most circumstances, we will strive to submit to both Caesar and God. But when Caesar makes a, um, an unjust demand that requires defying God, now you're in an either-or trap. And you have to select. Because to obey Caesar would be to defy God. When Caesar reaches that point of apostasy. Rendering to God means providing God's due allegiance, even if it means defying government's unrighteous demands. And we're going to build this out of a lot of principles here in the book of Daniel. And then we're going to see the outworking of it in two specific places in the book of Acts. Acts 4.19 and Acts 5.29. But first we've got to start, though, with Daniel in chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 6. It's a significant uh, chain of uh, principles that we glean out of this book from chapter 2 to chapter 6. So join me there. We'll try to get through before we're out of time. Daniel. Where are you, Daniel? There you are. Daniel 2.21. And this is in the chapter that has the statue and the, the image of uh, the, the prophetic message to Nebuchadnezzar about the course of Gentile history. And uh, as Daniel is worshiping and celebrating the fact that God answered his prayer and gave him a, 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 the revelation of, of concerning what that vision was about, Daniel says, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to Him. It is He who changes the times and the epochs. God just gave him a vision of Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome and how Rome was going to give way to the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so it is God who changes the times and the epics. He removes kings and He establishes kings. Who does that? God does that. God does that. Don't you get so prideful to say, oh, well, we're a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And we, we choose our leaders. Yes, we do. That is true. We do choose our leaders. But that is not to say that God does not choose our leader. Why do we make the choices we make? Why has God arranged the circumstances with a full, sovereign, foreknowledge, uh, awareness of what choices we're going to make and giving us the leaders that we so pridefully choose for ourselves? No, we get the leader he chooses for us. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is He who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with Him. So He understands it all. And the rulers we have are the rulers He's given us, either, as I said, either for our blessing or for our discipline. (coughs) Over to the next chapter, chapter (coughs) 3. And... uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not going to obey Nebuchadnezzar. They're not going to render to Nebuchadnezzar what is Nebuchadnezzar's because they understand that it's not Nebuchadnezzar's. Worship belongs to God and God alone. Nebuchadnezzar is worthy of their temporal obedience. He's worthy of their taxes. He's worthy of of everything he's entitled to under the temporal life principles, the laws of establishment. He's not worthy of worship and he's not worthy of being prayed to. Only God. You understand So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king of Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter, not your jurisdiction. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. That's their faith conviction. But even if he does not, oh, that's powerful. They're confident he will. But if not, in other words, if their conviction is actually inaccurate, Okay, And we, we can learn from this because we can develop a lot of faith convictions and yet we have to say, you know what? Even though this is my faith conviction, I don't have foreknowledge. I don't know what the next plan is. I don't know what's going to happen next year. So I have this conviction, but I still submit to the fact that God may reveal something else tomorrow. He's free to do that. So if even if He does not, let it be known to you, O King, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So this is an example of believers rendering unto God what is God's and not rendering unto Caesar. Now, here's the thing. By their faith, obedience to God, they are subject, they're still subject to Caesar, but now they're subject to Caesar's judicial consequences. Okay? They're subject to Nebuchadnezzar's temporal life discipline. The fiery furnace. Okay? They're still subject to the the governing authorities, but to be executed, okay? So, they're still, even though they're not complying, they're still subject. And volitionally willing to accept the consequences of their non-compliance. Make sense? They're not complying, but they're still subject. Understand that. All right. That's important. All right, next chapter over, chapter 4. We have a more fully, I think, developed uh, repeat of chapter 2. In verse 17 and verse 32 of chapter 4, you'll notice uh, the angelic watchers are issuing the decree, but it comes from heaven. Uh, In order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and He bestows it on whom He wishes, and sets over it the lowliest of men. There may be occasions when we have the lowliest of men assigned to us, as in the case of Belteshazzar here in this chapter, or in the case of our next chapter, Nebuchadnezzar this chapter, or in the case of leaders that we get for our discipline. Verse 32, You will be driven away from mankind in your dwelling places when Nebuchadnezzar is given given the mind of an animal. Your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field will be given grass to eat like cattle. Seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Nebuchadnezzar had to learn that lesson. I think humble leaders will understand that they are simply stewards. They understand that they are stewards and they may have great authority over a nation, but they've got great responsibility to God to exercise that authority with, with wisdom and with humility. Godless rulers, of course, have no awareness of that at all. Finally, uh, chapter 6, Lion's Den. Why was Daniel in the Lion's Den? Because he was subject to his governing authority. And it didn't mean he complied with an unjust demand. He defied the unjust. He was no compliance because he was subject to God. But he was in the lion's den because he was subject to uh, Cyrus of Persia here. And so in Daniel 6, uh, verse 10, Daniel knew that the document was signed. He knew that all prayer for the next 30 days had to be addressed towards uh, Darius here. But he wasn't going to start praying to Darius. Kind of stupid. Uh, so he knows he knows the document signed. He goes into his house. On his roof chamber, he had windows open towards Jerusalem. He continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he'd been doing previously. So he is not complying with the unjust law. But he is still subject to the uh, unjust law, and he's going to face the consequences of noncompliance. In uh, verse 22 and verse 23... I like it when, when morning, when uh, the king ar- arose at dawn, it says in verse 19, in the break of day, he went and haste the lion. I don't think he slept much that night. It says in verse 18, slept, sleep fled from him. I think Daniel slept better than the king did. And so he comes near to the den, cries out with a troubled voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver thee from the lions? And Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth and they have not harmed me as much as I have found it innocent before him and also toward you, O king, I have committed no crime. So the king was uh, very pleased, gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den and Daniel was taken up out of the den. No injury, whatever, was found on him because he had trusted in God. And it's not like the lions weren't hungry because when these uh, malicious accusers get thrown in there with their wives and their children. They, uh, they get eaten up before they can even land at the bottom of the pit And the things that happen there. All right, so there's the uh, principles out of Daniel 2, 3, 4, and 6. And that's critical, because remember, Daniel was a politician. Daniel was not, he, he prophesied, but he was not in a prophetic office to the nation of Israel. Daniel was never commanded to stand up and say, Thus saith the Lord. Daniel never had a speaking ministry to the Jewish people. He had a political ministry to Gentiles, both Babylonians and Persians. And um, that is uh, a significant difference between Daniel and Ezekiel. All right, then very quickly, Acts 4.19, Acts 5.29. And... um, This is when they're trying to figure out how they can stop Peter and John from uh, giving the gospel. In verse 13, they observed the confidence of Peter and John, understood they were illiterate morons. They were uneducated and untrained men. This is where we get our vocabulary for our our agramatas terminology for our training ministry. They weren't at all illiterate and moronic, but that's what they considered them because they didn't have the credentials they demanded in their Pharisaic schools. They were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. They had a much better um, graduate school they were attending. And um, they saw the man who had been healed. And they couldn't really tell him anything. things. <laughs> uh, so they say, what are we going to do? The fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in his name. And so they summoned them and they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Now, is that an unjust law? It is an unjust law. And Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. See, Caesar had created, or the human authority had created the, the dilemma. Because God commands us to be witnesses and testi- and to, to, to the uttermost parts of the earth. where to testify of the resurrection of Christ. We have the great commission. This is what God's commanded us, to speak of the things of the Lord. And so they created the, the uh, irreconcilable dilemma by saying, you can't say that. God says, I have to say that. So, he leaves it with you. You be the judge. Okay? They're still subject to the governing authorities. You be the judge. But we're not going to comply with your unlawful order. We're going to obey what God has for us to do. We cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. And so, when they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people, for so they were all glorifying God for what had happened. So, there's a good example right there. And this is—we're being told the same thing today. Just shut up about your faith, would you? Okay. I mean, you can be a Christian. That's fine. We won't outlaw you yet, but you can be a Christian. Just don't tell anybody about it. Keep it to yourself. Your religion is a quiet, private, personal matter. We don't want to hear about it. No, I'm sorry. My religion is not a quiet, private, personal matter. My faith before the Lord is to be proclaimed to this lost and dying world. And I'm commanded to testify. I, I, he saved me so that I can proclaim the excellencies of Him who called me out of darkness into His glorious light. And if you saved me so that I could make that proclamation, then you're telling me to not make that proclamation defies that. Finally, chapter 5 and verse 29. Once again, uh, uh, we told you last chapter, uh, shut up, quit talking about this. We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you fill Jerusalem with your teaching, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. And so, you and I today, we may have to come to a point of conviction where if man has put us into that dilemma, now ideally, you know, we won't get there. Ideally, we'll be able to obey God and man. As long as government doesn't give us unrighteous demands, as long as government doesn't tell us to do something that's contrary to Scripture, then uh, we should render into both. But if the government demands our disobeying of God, then we're going to have to make the choice. Do we disobey God for divine discipline? Or do we disobey man and remain subject and reap the consequences of whatever the the governmental consequences are going to be? Because we are subject to governing authorities. That doesn't change. Okay? All right. Well, that was a little quick, but I wanted to get through that before the top of the hour. So... um, We may move on next week to the um, trap here with the Pharisees. This wonderful fictional story of this. You wonder who this lady was that went through seven husbands. I'd start to get suspicious. If I was brother three or four, I'd be... No. (laughs) All right. Father, thank You for Your truth, for Your faithfulness, for the truth of Your Word. And Father, we do pray for our nation. We're commanded to pray for our nation we might live a quiet life in godliness and dignity. Specifically, we're praying that the government authorities will not issue imperatives that violate our Christian way of life. So, Father, we give that to you. And we do pray, Father, that you would give us leaders that would not be anti-Semitic, that would not be hostile to your word. And in the meantime, Father, I pray that your children will wake up and get serious about their Christian walk. Our nation doesn't need... uh, economic answers or military answers or political answers. Our nation needs pastors that are teaching the truth and believers that put away the foolishness and get serious about their Christian walk. So, Father, I thank you in Christ's name. Amen.